Well, friends, we're going to start um, at the Christmas story because that's where our joy begins. Let's share in God's good word from Luke chapter 2. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, welcome to joy. The Sunday after Easter, the disciples are afraid, they're hidden away, and yet we are to be a people of joy. How does that work? Over the next eight weeks, we're going to talk about joy and how to find it and how to keep it and how to share it in troubled times. Uh, as a way of introduction, our entire faith is a faith of joy. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in a community of joy. And so the life of Jesus begins in joy with the announcement, and it ends in joy in the ascension. Hebrews 12 writes it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. <clears throat> now watch the next line. Who for the sake of the joy... That was set before him endured the cross. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? Now we today can associate the cross with joy, but at that time it was certainly anything but that. Who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So our faith, Christianity, it begins with what? Christmas. Come on, y'all know this. This is not hard. Right. And when Mary becomes pregnant, you'll remember that she's roughly 14 years of age. She's not married. You can be stoned for being pregnant at that age without being married. And what does she do? She sings. She sings a song of joy because God is doing something much bigger than what the world could see. In Luke 1, it says this. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. At the very beginning, we are a people of joy. And so at Christmas, you, you probably know this song, we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's joy that we sing about. And then at Easter, on the sort of other end of our faith, uh, Charles Wesley, one of our founders, John and Charles Wesley. Charles was the songwriter. John uh, was the founder of our movement. At Easter, we sing this song that Charles wrote. Christ the Lord is risen today. And when we sing it, we say, Hallelujah. Sons of men and angels say, Hallelujah. Raise your joy. Again, we're back to joy. And triumph high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jurgen Moltmann, um, the great theologian, he would say it like this You and I, we are created for joy. That's what we're for. We are born for joy. Now, for me, when I think of joy, I think of four-year-olds. They're potty trained, yet they're still snuggly. This joy, they just exude joy. Joy here, joy there, joy everywhere. You, you can't contain it. There's just joy everywhere. 
And when we look at the creation of God, we see the joy that is God, that is his spirit, that is joy. And it's not unique to just us today. It's been that way. We have a God of joy all the way through the Old Testament. And most people don't think of the God of the Old Testament as a God of joy, but that's exactly who God is. That's what the festivals are all about, to stop and to give thanks and to be joyful and to have celebration and dancing and feasting and friends and family to come together to stop all other work and to come together and just have a party. Did you know you have a God that loves to throw a party? That's not normally how people think of Christianity, but that is exactly who we are. That's who our Jewish ancestors are, that there's joy throughout the Old Testament. So with God... There is fullness of joy. It's not just a partial joy. It's there all the time. All the time. So the psalmist in the the great songbook, they would say it like this. You show me the path of life. In your presence there is, say it with me, fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. This is how we are to live in the fullness of God's joy. We worship a God of joy. That God and God's self is even joy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a community of joy. Again, in the psalm book, it says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed do what? Rejoice. That's who we are to be. Y'all are sleepy this morning. Yeah, it's been a windy week. Makes you tired. But we are to be joyful. And here's, here's the thing, friends. You know as well as I do that bad things happen. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to everybody. That's not new. And so... Nobody has the corner market on pain and misery, right? Pain is inevitable. Your response is optional. But pain comes to everyone. It came to Jesus on the cross, and the Scripture says he endured that with joy. There was something bigger going on. He was able to take that pain and connect it with all the world. And when you are going through something, you've got one of two choices. You can either contrast your pain with the life of somebody else that you figure is better off than you and become bitter. Or you can connect your pain with the other 7 billion people on the planet and you can get better. And you can transform that pain into something that God can use. But pain comes to everybody. Nobody opts out of pain. Everybody has pain. The question is, how do you respond? And do you contrast it with others and say, woe is me, I'm a victim? Or do you connect with the pain of the world and transform it. Those choices are yours. Bitter or better. That's not new. You've heard that. But the thing is, it really is about your perspective, how you contrast it or how you unite that with the pain of the world as Jesus did. Again, in our songbook, it says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, what? Read it with me. The joy of your salvation. The joy of the Lord. That God is with us, that we as a people on the planet are all one people. The joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, the scripture says. O give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but, read it with me, joy comes with the morning. Joy and hope are connected. We begin to lose our joy when we begin to lose our hope. And our hope is everlasting. So our joy is everlasting. Again, our our faith tradition would sing out, You have turned my mourning into what? Dancing. And you have taken off my sackcloth, which is is something you would do in, in grief, and clothed me with 
joy. There it is. It's all throughout the Old Testament, friends. God is a God of joy. We are a people of joy. We are a community of joy. Not only that, do we sing about it, do we live in it, the prophets themselves proclaim that the Lord will provide what kind of joy? Everlasting joy. It never ends because that's who God is, a God of love, a God of hope, a God of joy. So the prophet Isaiah, not known, you know, as, as, a, as a lifter up of your day, right? Prophets are prophets of doom. That's what they do. Yet even with Isaiah, he would say this, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Everlasting joy, the prophet says. And even God himself is joyful. Now, this, this one's harder for me, but it is in the scripture and it is true. But it's, it's difficult sometimes to hold on to what we would consider as Christian humility and just the incredible joy that God has at looking at you, his creation. Did you know that? God looks at you and he doesn't just say you're good. He says you're very good and he loves you just as you are. If you are a parent, you have had this moment where you look at your little one and you just have joy. It just radiates over you. You can't help yourself. You don't know really where it came from or how long it's going to last. But when you look at what has been created in love, in joy, you have joy. It fades a little in teenagers. It comes back. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. You'll get it one day. Right? God himself is joy. So the prophet Zephaniah, he says this about the relationship between us and God. The Lord, your God, is with you, always with us, friends. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. Did you know that, that God takes great delight in you? He looks at you and he loves you, he takes great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? That as you sleep at night, God looks down upon you and rejoices at what he has done in you. He loves you. He dances over you. He sings over you. He has joy. And not just God, even the earth rejoices in the presence of God. One of my favorite things to do in Oklahoma, when the winds have been as they are, is to watch the cedars. And they'll just dance back and forth, back and forth. In the scriptures, it says, like, the cedars of Lebanon, they'll, they'll dance before the Lord. And, and in Oklahoma, sometimes you'll see them dance, sometimes you'll see them fly. It just depends on uh, how, how it is. So, again, the great, the great songbook of the church says this, Let the heavens be what? Glad. That's who we are. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Last week at Easter, we, Jesus tells them, even the, even the stones will cry out if my people don't praise me. Because that's how God has made the world. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. Now, I don't know if this will help you, but this helps me a lot. When I read the word righteousness, I have to change it in my head to rightness. To rightness. Righteousness has, has at least when I grew up, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and now... Right? It has sort of this negative connotation. Oh, well, they're righteous or they're self-righteous or they think they're so righteous. They've taken a really wonderful word and, and really tainished or, you know, tarnished it, tainted it. So when you see righteousness, all that means is that things are right as they're supposed to be. 
So God will judge the world with rightness. He will do it perfectly. And that's good news for you, friends. And the people's with his truth. There will be no more lying. There will be no more misunderstanding. The truth will reign, and it will be right, and it will be good. It will be in joy. Again, um, Moltmann, the great theologian, says this. When God comes to judge the earth, the whole of creation will do what? Rejoice. It's not a bad thing, friends. When God is in the room, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We should have this in mind when we speak of the final judgment. The final judgment is a day of rejoicing, not of terror. Say that with me. The final day of judgment is a day of rejoicing, not of terror. Friends, we have to get this right. You may have grown up in a tradition that talks about the final judgment to try to scare you to death to get you to be baptized or whatever that may be. Friends, we're not trying to scare the hell out of you. We're trying to love heaven into you. There's a difference. And this is, when it comes to the judgment, you should look forward to it because it is a time of joy. The scripture says, right, that it's going to be a time of rejoicing. Even all of creation will rejoice because God is making all things new. God is making all things right. God is making you right. And that is a good and wonderful thing. It's not something to be afraid of. And this is our Christian joy that Jesus, our God, was and is and is to come. New Testament professor N.T. Wright says it like this, God has acted to put things right, to put a stop to evil, and to deliver his people from their enslaving enemy. Friends, we are free. Those who have Christ, we are free indeed, the scripture says. And in the letters of Paul, he takes, he says that joy, he lifts it up. It's second place only to love, only to love. Many of you all know this letter to the church in Galatia. Paul writes, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then what? Joy. God is love. We know this from the Scripture. And then the very next thing is joy. Of course, these others are good too. Peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things. But joy is right there at the very top of the list. If somebody looked at your life, would they consider you a joyful person? When's the last time you threw a party? When's the last time you had a good belly laugh? We are to be people of joy. Of joy. God is not against a good time, friends. God is for you and with you and has joy for you. N.T. Wright says it like this. Joy is intimately connected to the resurrection of Jesus. On the one hand, and to his ascended lordship on the other. We celebrate... Because he is risen, and we celebrate because he's now in control. That God is a God of rightness. Jesus is a judge of rightness. Again, when Paul writes to the early church in Philippi, he says, the Philippians is an expression of joy. The entire letter is an expression of joy. It is an invitation to joy in the midst of suffering. Again, it's not that there's no suffering. There is. For you, for me. For everyone you will ever know. But look what Paul writes in the very first words of his letter. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying. You you get this by now with what? With joy. So even in his imprisonment, he is praying with joy. In every one of my prayers for all of you, because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. This joy is connected to purpose. This joy is connected to something greater than Paul's own self. This joy is connected to what God is doing 
in the world. And Paul's letter is a celebration and a sustained declaration of joy in God despite adversity. Despite adversity. I I don't know where this metaphor comes from, but I think it's really good. So in life, bad things will happen to you. We know this. And so you think of that as an arrow. Everybody gets shot with an arrow. Everyone. No one gets a pass with that. Everybody is shot with an arrow sometime in your life. The question is, will you dwell on it? Will you harbor it? Will you hold unforgiveness and anger and hatred? And the ancients would say, that's the second arrow that you shoot upon yourself. Only the wise person is shot once. Why would you shoot yourself twice with the second arrow? That is an option. The first arrow, inevitable. The second arrow, optional. And so we each have a choice about what happens in our lives. The first arrow is always going to come, but we actually do get to choose whether or not we shoot ourselves again. So Paul writes in the middle of a very difficult time when he knows his life is about to end. He writes, rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness, because everybody said, what? Paul says, what? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. By the way, joyful people are gentle people. Right? The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And when you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You give thanks in all things, friends, and all the time. So Moltman, he'll say this, the difference between joy and fun, we have to make this distinction, The difference between joy and fun is as great as the distinction between joy and a gamble of chance or between a meaningful life and a lottery win. Joy is enduring. Will you say that with me? Joy is enduring. That's what we're looking for. And it puts its mark on one's attitude to living. Fun is short-term and serves amusement. That comes and goes. True joy is only possible with one's whole heart, whole soul, and all one's energies. We're missing a lot of joy in our culture today because we live distracted. We live fractured from here to here to here to here to here. We don't have our whole person involved in it. We don't have our whole energies devoted to anything. And when that happens, your joy erodes because life loses its meaning as it becomes fractured and distracted. So if you want to have joy, you have to be all in. You have to be purposeful. And go forward with what God has for you today. Now here's the thing about joy though, friends. You can't go get it. You can't go buy it. You can't get to the dollar dollar store and say, I want one of those. So joy today, friends, we have to understand this, that joy is a byproduct. It comes sideways. Joy happens as you're looking at your child. Joy happens when you're doing meaningful work. Joy happens when you're with friends, you're throwing a party, you're blessing others. Joy happens as a byproduct when you see the difference that God is making through you in the world. Joy comes sideways, and it's a beautiful thing. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, if you study his life, he's now uh, passed uh, just this past year. But he had a very difficult life, a very difficult life, and, and he knew joy in the midst of that life. 
And so he, he would remind people of this. He says, if you set out and say, I want to be happy, clenching your teeth with determination, this is the quickest way of missing the bus. Any of y'all ever go on vacation with family? Oh, we're going here and you're going to like it. It doesn't happen. You can't do it that way. But you, you can be in your backyard doing a bunch of nothing and joy just overwhelm you at the, the sight of a sunset or a cardinal or a blue jay or, or just your kids not fighting for a moment. I mean, just wonderful joy. It just happens. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to talk about the eight pillars of joy. There's eight of them. There are things that block our joy and things that ha- allow it to come into our lives more fully all the time. We're going to talk about those. But we're only going to talk about one today. And the thing about these eight pillars are that four of them are in your mind. Things that you can actually choose with your mind. And the other four are in your heart. Four in your mind, four in your heart. They go together. Now, this is not new, um, but I just wonder, who do you see when you take a look at this? How many of you all see a beautiful, fancy young woman? You see her? Yeah, most of you see her. How many of you all see an old woman? How many of y'all see both women? Yeah, it takes some time. So uh, over time, you can see one, and then you can see the other. But which is it? Now, this is where our world gets messed up. Because someone will say, that's an old woman. And someone will say, no, that's a young woman. And then they fight about it. What is it a matter of? It's a matter of perspective. How do you see it? And by the way, friends, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. That's the truth of the matter. That's an old Jewish proverb worth committing to memory. We do not see the world as it is. We simply see the world as we are. So if you are frightened and dismayed, the world becomes a frightening and dismaying place. If you're a person of love, you can find love in the world. If you're a person of forgiveness, you live in a forgiving world. If you see God at hand, you're living in the heavens. If it is all up to you and it's about your pride, then you live in a very scary place. Because we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are, as our heart is. That's our lens. And you do get to choose that. Now, sometimes you have to really overcome some hard lenses that you've learned. But you get to choose that. One of the things that um, I saw... Um, I can't use it for copyright reasons, but um, some of you may have seen uh, when William Shatner uh, went to space and came back, and he was so moved by what he saw. Captain Kirk, of all people, you know, moved by space. And what, what is true about his experience has been true for many, many astronauts over the years, that once they get up and they, they break gravity, they look back, and, and when they see the Earth, this tiny little floating ball in the middle of nothingness in this vast universe they never look at their personal interest or national interest the same there are no borders there all the borders are man-made we draw them ourselves god didn't do that the only thing you see on that little blue ball is god's children that's it there's no distinction we are all in this together it is the perspective that makes a difference. When you, see, when you start to see the world as God sees the world, it makes it a very different place. Now, the good news is this. Scientific research found that our ability to reframe our situation more positively increases joy. 
So there's some people go through the exact same thing. One is joyful, the other morose. True story. There were two soldiers at the Army Medical Center at Fort Bliss. Both of them had lost uh, limbs. They were both paraplegics. They had lost the, the use of their legs in combat. They had the same diagnosis. They had the same prognosis. The first veteran that they named Tom was lying in his bed, nodded into the fetal position, and he was railing against his life and how he had been cursed by his fate. There was a second soldier named Chuck. On the exact same day, with the exact same prognosis, he was out of his bed, in a wheelchair, going around, and when they asked him about it, you know what he said? He was amazed at how God had given him a second chance in life. That he had been given a second chance in life. And he was, as he wheeled through the garden, he found himself that he was closer to the flowers. And when his family came to visit him, he could see directly into his children's eyes. That was how he saw his life. So our perspective, your perspective, literally has the power to keep you alive. To cause your life or cause your death. For you and others. Simply by the way you choose to see the world. Douglas Abrams in his book, The Book of Joy, says it like this. A healthy perspective really is the foundation of joy and happiness. Because the way we see the world is the way we experience the world. Changing the way we see the world in turn changes the way we feel and the way we act, which changes the world itself. Heaven comes to earth. So you and I, we become open to joy when we recognize That our limited perspective simply is not the truth. This is really important, friends. No one here has the corner on truth. No one. You simply have your perspective. And that's it. That is it. So someone else is going to see your situation differently than you do. You're going to see their situation differently than they do. You're going to view the world differently. That's okay. But you can only see it from your perspective. You don't have any other choice because it's your lens, the way you've brought up, your context, your culture, your family system. So what do you do about joy? Well, joy comes when we move beyond our own self-interest, our own lens, from I and me to us and we. Now, if you've been with us over the last eight weeks, you know that's interesting. We've been talking about moving from I and me to us and we through the Lord's Prayer week after week after week. And it's not just found in the Christian tradition. It is a universal truth that when we move beyond ourselves, joy comes. That's not unique to to Christian perspectives. It is a Christian perspective, but it's not unique to us. When we move from our self-interest, from I and me, to us and we, things change. People who more frequently use I and me, this this is research-based, they have a higher risk of heart attack. Not only that, they have a higher risk of the heart attack being fatal. Simply by using the terms I and me more often than us and we. Health researcher Larry Sherwitz found that people who more frequently said I, me, mine, not not only were they at risk for a fatal heart attack, that is true, but he also found that their self-involvement was a better predictor of death. This was amazing to me. A better predictor of death than smoking or high cholesterol or high blood pressure. Simply being self-absorbed was more damaging to your health. You're more likely to die. And another researcher, Johannes Zimmerman, found that people more often use that first personal singular words like me and mine and I 
they're also more likely to be depressed. That shouldn't surprise you. Because our God is always trying to help us have a life and have it more full, to have it joyfully. It is really true that being self-centered makes you unhappy. That's simply the way God has made the world. Now, the converse is also true. When you say, how can I help spread compassion and love, joy has a way of showing up even when you least expect it. When you're working, when you're helping, when you're serving. Now, fortunately, I don't deal with this very often, but when I was doing my doctoral program uh, outside of Pasadena, every once in a while, I would find myself here. Maybe you found yourself somewhere like that in your life. You feel stuck. If you're not careful, you'll be frustrated. You can become angry at the other people around you. You know, there are people today who are losing their lives because of road rage, because somebody cut them off. And rather than seeing themselves in a much bigger picture, they reduce the entire world to that moment, and it costs them their life. That's not wise. But that is the world we live in today. But it's not the world you have to live in. You have a choice about that. You can become unoffendable. And you can choose to say, I wonder what's going on in the car to my right. I wonder what's going on in the car to my left. Are they on their way to chemo? Are they on their way to have a baby? Are they on their way to a well check? Are they on their way to serve someone? You can actually transform this. And and here's the thing. The next time you are stuck in traffic, and and, and Edmund, it it won't be that. I mean, even the Broadway is not that yet, right? But here's the thing. Here's your action step. When you find yourself in these places, I want to challenge you to pray. Please, God, give each one of them, each and every car, what they need the next time you're stuck in traffic. When you're you're stopped, pray for the cars around you. Ask God to bless them. Ask what's good for them. Connect your life to their life. Because it makes a big difference between if you sit in your car and you contrast your frustration with their life or whether you connect your life to everyone else on the planet in compassion and love. It changes your ability to receive joy in your life for your good. I want to say amen, but I'm not sure you believe it yet. We'll pick it back up next week. Let's pray together the prayer that Jesus has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.